The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and for this week's Coronation Special we've chosen four articles. Firstly, William Moore remembers the 1953 coronation with those that were there. Katie Balls reads her politics column on a tale of two appointments. Dan Hitchens reads his lead in the arts pages of the magazine on The Art of the Coronation. And Ascender Maxtone Graham reviews The Seaside by Madeline Bunting. Up first, William Moore. Lady Rosemary Muir was 23 when she received a letter from the Duke of Norfolk, the Earl Marshal, informing her that she had been chosen as one of the six maids of honour to assist the Mistress of the Robes in the coronation of Elizabeth II. That was in January 1953. From then until the coronation day in June, the maids of honour were the subject of many excited articles. The press dubbed them the Lucky Six, envied by every other woman in the land. Envied, they certainly were, but luck had little to do with it. Lady Rosemary tells me it was no great surprise to her that she was appointed to be a maid of honour. I was a duke's daughter, she says, as we look through her hefty album of coronation photographs and cuttings. Why shouldn't I be? We meet in March, when newspapers are full of jumpy reports that the coronation for Charles III will be stripped back. The king will not wear breeches or silk stockings. There will be no coronets for the peers, no specially made coronation stools for the guests. There will be only 2,000 guests in Westminster Abbey, instead of the 8,000 who attended in 1953. Many commentators seem to have accepted that it's fated to be a disappointment. I ask Lady Rosemary what she makes of Hugo Vickers' assertion, which concludes this year's reprint of his book, Coronation, The Crowning of Elizabeth II, that the coronation of King Charles III cannot hope to match the magnificence of 1953. Yes, I'm sure he's right, she says. Nowadays, everything is hit and miss. Lady Rosemary, the daughter of John Spencer Churchill, 10th Duke of Marlborough, was brought up in Blenheim Palace. The household was run with military precision by her very strict mother. Everyone knew their role. You were never allowed to be late for one minute. If you were told to do something, you concentrated on doing it and doing it properly, she says. When people ask me about the coronation, they always ask me, weren't you nervous? Weren't you this? Weren't you that? No, we just got on with it. Her grandmother had also got on with it at the 1902 coronation, carrying the canopy over Queen Alexandra during her anointing. At the 1953 coronation, the chief role of the maids of honour was to carry the Queen's 20-foot velvet train and to remove and fold it before the anointing. The Dean of Westminster wrote afterwards that he was struck by how the maids of honour moved with notable precision. Their exact movements did not, Lady Rosemary recalls, require much practice. You knew what to do, you didn't have to be taught it. At 93, her balance and posture make me, 60 years her junior, 
embarrassed by my slouching. Rehearsals in general were all very light-hearted, she says, partly because everybody knew everybody else. If any part had to be redone, the Duke of Norfolk, who oversaw all non-liturgical arrangements, would turn to the maids of honour, wink at us and say, it's not you girls, I've got these old gentlemen to sort out. Small vials of ammonia were sewn into the maids' gloves in case they felt faint on the day, but Lady Rosemary says they found the whole ceremony so relaxed. Later, at the recess, the Archbishop of Canterbury shook her hand and accidentally crushed her vial, spilling the ammonia into her glove. When the maids of honour lined up with the Queen in the annex to enter the abbey, they were all as calm as if we were out for an afternoon stroll. We did what we were told to do and did it to the best of our ability, she says. That was life in general and the coronation was no different. This sentiment is echoed by Brigadier Andrew Parker Bowles, who was a page for the Lord Chancellor at the coronation at the age of 13. One just did as one was told, he says. Discipline, however, has its limits. In the final rehearsal, the pages were given their ceremonial, but very real, swords. The temptation was too much. As you can imagine, a lot of 13-year-olds clustered together. Everyone drew their swords and started jousting away. The Earl Marshal sent in the Gold Staff officers to sort us out. We were cuffed around the ears. Uh, nowadays, that would be called assault or something. He still has his page's sword, which sits proudly alongside his army sword. Viscount John Eccles was one of the young Gold Staff officers, essentially ushers who reported to the Earl Marshal. His father, David, was the Minister of Works in 1953 and so worked closely with the Duke of Norfolk on the coronation preparations. Although the day itself came and went without effort, Lord Eccles says that from watching the Duke of Norfolk and his father, he could see the tremendous amount of thought that went into it. Richard Dimbleby, the coronation's BBC commentator, later remarked upon the effort it takes to make something appear effortless. The Duke of Norfolk was a man who carried the entire burden of arrangements on his shoulders, who knew every detail and personally worked on every timetable. I do not think he could have had more than a few hours rest at any time during the eight months preceding. The great novelty of the 1953 coronation, as well as a further complication, was the fact that it was televised live. Lord Eccles says his father was very keen on making the broadcast a success and worked with the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Duke of Norfolk, both of whom were at first uncertain about filming a religious service, to ensure it was proper. He understood that the new technology was a chance to show the world we could do something like that really well with tremendous attention to detail. Brigadier Parker Bowles, who will attend this week's coronation, says it's slightly unfortunate that the seating is limited to 2,000. The whole thing is very different nowadays. It is hard to imagine peers piled to the roof on rickety scaffolding in 2023. Seven decades ago, though, George Lorne was a 17-year-old lifeguards trumpeter and one of the hundred or so men from the Household Cavalry Mounted Squadron at Knightsbridge tasked with testing the seating arrangements on one evening in April. We had to clamber up inside onto all of this scaffolding where all the lords and ladies were going to sit, he tells me. There were hundreds of soldiers all standing there on the scaffold, and this Welsh Guard Sergeant Major down below said, When I say jump, 
jump up and down. So there we were, half the British army, jumping up and down. It didn't matter if we were all killed to see if this thing was strong enough for all these lords and ladies to sit on. As smoothly as things went for those inside the abbey on the day, not everyone involved in the coronation was so lucky. Major Hugh Cantley was an ensign on the 2nd Battalion Scots Guards at Chelsea. On coronation day, he was bearing the Queen's colour and was lining the mall with his back to St James's. A police horse had come down the mall and laid its breakfast right in front of me, he says. And then there was the cry, Princess Margaret is coming down. She was leaving the palace to go to the abbey. We had to do a royal salute, so I then dragged the Queen's colour through the steaming mound. Then, at the recover, I got most of the horse manure on my face. So that was my lasting memory of the day. His luck didn't improve. When it was all over, it was beginning to rain a bit, so we were ordered to put on capes. I turned round to where they were all rolled up behind us in the gutter, and some small boy had been sick on mine. In the evening, he changed out of uniform and joined the mob outside. The day ended for Lord Eccles at Buckingham Palace. The maids of honour were the focus of the party, he says. Lady Rosemary, sadly, couldn't stick around. After a quick pit stop at the palace, Prince Charles was rolling around with the Queen's crown. She rushed back to Burnham because her mother was roasting an ox. Parker Bowles, meanwhile, was taken with other pages after the ceremony to the House of Lords, where they were treated to an amazing spread of food one had never seen before, including bananas, oranges and coronation chicken. One hadn't been to many public occasions, he explains. There were no parties after the war. The coronation was a whole new experience. We had nothing to judge it against. On the day of the coronation, the news reached Britain that the first men had successfully climbed Mount Everest. As young boys, that really struck us much more than anything else. It was such a new world. That was William Moore. Next, Katie Balls. When Boris Johnson appointed Simon Case to the Cabinet Office, he believed that the youngest Cabinet Secretary in a century, just 41 when he accepted the role, would be more malleable than his more experienced rivals. Case was appointed in September 2020, when Dominic Cummings was in effect running number 10 and had big ideas about rewiring Whitehall. Simon was picked to be Dom Stooge, says one former Johnson aide. His role was to let Dom be Dom. Conversely, when Keir Starmer asked Sue Gray to be his chief of staff, the idea was a civil servant for her seniority would be able to bring to Labour, a party that's been out of power for more than a decade, the planning and expertise needed to prepare for government. There was also the bonus that her new position could be read as a damning verdict on the Tories' behaviour in government, since she was the one to have investigated Johnson's parties in number 10. Both appointments were ultimately aimed at shaping the machinery of government. Now they risk becoming drag anchors. Case has been significantly weakened by several recent dramas, including his role in the government by WhatsApp during lockdown, and what he knew about Richard Sharp's link to a loan for Boris Johnson, well, there are doubts Gray will take up her post any time soon. To the annoyance of Labour, the Tories spent the final days of the local election campaign not talking about core issues, but moving their news agenda to concerns over Gray's appointment. It's Sue Gray week, says one excitable aide. While some of this is political point scoring, there are legitimate questions over the appointment process, which could come back to haunt Starmer. Gray is subject to two inquiries about whether she correctly disclosed the negotiations with Labour over the job. 
The first is a Cabinet Office investigation into her appointment. Since she has already resigned from the civil service, she is not being very compliant. She is essentially pleading the fifth, says a government aide. There is some amusement that the party gate inquisitor is refusing to cooperate. Now the shoe is on the other foot. The more important inquiry is by ACABA, the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments, which will recommend whether Gray can take the job. It may suggest a delay of more than a year, as well as tweaks to the terms of engagement. The concern is obvious. Should senior civil servants, who have privileged knowledge of government problems, be poached by the opposition? Technically, she could ignore any order to stay, but Starmer has suggested he will abide by any rulings. The Tories hope two things will follow from this. First, that by the suggestion of murkiness in Gray's appointment, Starmer's reputation as Mr Rules will be dented. The bigger prize would be if Gray is unable to take up the appointment for a long enough period for it to become a major headache for Labour. She's not even started the job and she is already the story. If you become that well-known like Dominic Cummings or Alistair Campbell, it's only a matter of time before you go, says a number 10 veteran. Others worry it screams a naivety in both Starmer and Gray. It would have been much smarter for Starmer to just make a cabinet secretary on entering number 10, says one former colleague of Gray, who recalls that her main loyalty in Whitehall was to the cats in the cabinet office. One person who appears to be finding an upside to Gray's woes is Case. According to Whitehall insiders, there's little love lost between the pair. Case, who was poached from the royal household to his number 10 job, has never been viewed as one of the civil service, but as more of a political courtier. Now that even admirers of Gray are disappointed by the management of her appointment, Case can try to rebrand himself as the defender of civil servant impartiality. It may not be enough. During the Johnson era, aides and meetings were struck that Case behaved more like a chief of staff, while Dan Rosenfield, the supposed real chief of staff, seemed happier playing a permanent secretary role. Matt Hancock's leaked WhatsApp messages showed Case acting like any other politician, even joining in partisan sniping against cabinet members who asked difficult questions about lockdown. The WhatsApp leaks were difficult for Case, but the report into Sharp's appointment as BBC chairman is worse. Sharp says that he told Case of his potential appointment as BBC chairman when he introduced Sam Blythe as a potential guarantor for a loan. Case has said he cannot recall the conversation in detail, despite evidence that draft lines to take by the Cabinet Office suggested Sharp had informed Case about the BBC appointment process. If Case knew about Sharp's link to the loan, should he not have insisted that it was declared? Some of Case's critics in Whitehall compare him to McCavity, the mystery cat. You may meet him in a by-street, you may see him in the square, but when a crime's discovered, the McCavity's not there. Others say that he has just made too many mistakes. Simon's judgment is totally off, says one former colleague. It's hard to find a senior civil servant willing to speak up in his defence, though several would like his job. But there's more sympathy in Sunak's government. Oliver Dowden, the new Deputy Prime Minister, is an old colleague of cases, and the pair have a good relationship from their time together in David Cameron's number 10. Case has also taken on a senior role in Sunak's Stop the Boats pledge. Some Tory aides see the benefit, too, of having a more politically-minded cabinet secretary. Better the devil we know. He's likely to be sacked by any Labour government, which means he could be a useful ally to the Tories. Case could quit, but Sunak is unlikely to push him. Yet the problem for Sunak, which could soon become Starmer's problem, 
is that prime ministers can be undone by a dysfunctional civil service, where his predecessors would often attack civil servants with dramatic rhetoric. Sunak takes a more diplomatic approach. The Prime Minister is not against civil service reform, but it has not been in Downing Street as a priority ahead of the next election. That was Katie Balls. Next, Dan Hitchens. In 1937, the Parisian communist newspaper, Sassoir, sent a 28-year-old would-be filmmaker on an unpromising assignment. Henri Cartier-Bresson was to take photographs of the British coronation, an event of limited appeal either to Sassoir's readers or to Cartier-Bresson himself. But on the streets of London, he discovered what would become his signature approach. He would turn away from the king, the procession, the organised magnificence, and focus solely on the crowds, looking for some fleeting moment in which the meaning of the day was concentrated. As he wrote long after, a photographer's intuition can find both a geometrical order and a depth of significance in an apparently random fragment of time. In photography, the smallest thing can be a great subject. The results, newly republished as Henri Cartier-Bresson, The Other Coronation, records the energy and exuberance of the occasion. Two brill-creamed lads in their best suits, hoisting their girlfriends onto their shoulders for a better view. A puzzled old gent beneath a high-rise top hat, peering into the distance while his wife points something out. Policemen trying to keep a straight face. Four ladies sitting down amid a litter of discarded newspapers, eating apples from their packed lunch. His Majesty's subjects, smoking, napping, sharing a joke. Captures the English as George Orwell would describe them four years later with their mild, knobby faces, their bad teeth and gentle manners. Cartier-Bresson may have thought he was snubbing the monarchy, but in another sense he was vindicating it. Hardened Republicans watching this Saturday's coronation will grumble about the expense, the pomposity, the inexplicable rituals, and will generally feel like Earl Fitzwilliam, who asserted in the House of Lords in 1838 that coronations were fit only for barbarous or semi-barbarous ages. But the artistic tradition, from medieval illustrators and architects to Tudor pageant designers, to the composers, painters and photographers who have helped create our image of the coronation, suggests a different perspective. The ceremony takes place with splendour for the same reason a wedding does, because it solemnises a relationship, in this case, between the monarch and the people. It's only natural if, from time to time, the people elbow their way onto centre stage. In fact, this happens in what I think is the oldest depiction of an English coronation ceremony, in the Bayer Tapestry. It's 6th of January, 1066, and King Harold is being crowned by the Archbishop of Canterbury while the public applauds outside. But in the next panel, the crowd is distracted by a mysterious sign in the sky, Halley's Comet, we now know, which portends that the king may not occupy the throne for long. With Harold's defeat at Hastings, the era of Anglo-Saxon rule ended. But much of the ceremony survived, and it was a ceremony which, especially in the monarch's oath, emphasised a ruler's duties to the people. In his richly informative history of the coronation, Sir Roy Strong argues that monarchy in England never became, as it did in France, absolute. It always remained conditional upon being faithful to the three pledges given in the oath to maintain peace, administer justice, and exercise equity and mercy. The artwork that best expressed those expectations is sadly lost. A mural in the painted chamber of Westminster Palace 
where late medieval kings spent the night before their coronation. It depicted a story about St Edward the Confessor, who when approached by a beggar, realised he had no cash on him, so gave instead a precious sapphire ring. Several years on, two English pilgrims in the Holy Land met an old man who explained that he was St John the Evangelist, that he had once been given a ring by King Edward when in disguise as a beggar, and would they mind returning it? That story may or may not be true, just as it may or may not be the very same sapphire that now adorns the imperial state crown. But in any case, it was St Edward's pious example that loomed over his successors. His crown was used at coronations from 1220 until the Civil War. Westminster Abbey was his project in the first place, and its present form is Henry III's tribute to the saint, a fittingly spectacular place to house Edward's shrine and to crown his successors. Medieval coronations may have exalted kingly authority, but they implicitly embraced the rest of society, and artists increasingly registered that point. The very earliest pictures of crowned kings, such as an 11th century portrayal of King Canute, do not even feature the ceremony, except as symbolically performed by angels. By the 13th and 14th centuries, kings are shown surrounded at their coronations, hemmed in even, by bishops and nobles. When we get to the Tudor era, Coronation artists are including, if not exactly the common people, then at least the footmen and gentlemen-at-arms who took part in the procession. And London itself is now part of the picture. In another lost wall painting, this one copied by a later engraver, Edward VI can only just be made out above the rooftops of Cheapside, occupying the foreground. By then, processions were integral to the event. From 1377, when the boy King Richard II entered the city on a wave of symbolic pageantry, maidens blowing golden leaves onto the king, the streets running with red and white wine, to 1685, when James II insisted on all that art, ornament and expense could do to the making of the spectacle dazzling and stupendous, the coronation was the monarch's chance to win over the populace, or at least London. The state entry became a work of art in itself, consisting of elaborate theatrical designs in which the monarch processed through huge triumphal arches and was greeted as Virgil's Aeneas, Charles II, or as Deborah from the Old Testament, Elizabeth I. Not coincidentally, those who seized the opportunity, like Elizabeth chatting with the crowds and enthusiastically joining in with the symbolic theatre, were generally more successful in their reigns than, say, Charles I, who unwisely cancelled the state entry. After the Glorious Revolution, the coronation suffers an identity crisis. What was originally a Catholic service now required a fiercely anti-Catholic declaration. And the ceremonies that once confirmed the monarch's authority now explicitly reminded them that Parliament was supreme. The Age of Enlightenment struggled with ceremony and symbolism, and we enter the era of the coronation gaffe, of the badly trained horse that was meant to walk in front of George III, but instead backed into him, and of the archbishop shoving Victoria's ring onto the wrong finger. You get the sense that nobody really knows what they're doing. Hence the view that the 20th century coronation, with all its solemnity and organisational precision, is an invented tradition, a pastiche that only pretends to be timeless. Yet, even at its lowest ebb, the coronation retained its potency, at least to the artistic imagination. Think of how painters bring the Westminster Abbey crowds to life, notably in John Martin's dream vision of Victoria's coronation, with light pouring through the windows onto a blur of ermine and satin. Think of Edward Scriven's opulent print of George IV, 
his enormous crimson mantle held up by the eight eldest sons of peers. Think above all of Handel, whose Zadok the Priest, composed for George II in 1727, is not only a thunderous affirmation of kingship, but also an echo of the distant past. Some version of those words about Zadok and Solomon has, remarkably, been sung at every coronation since King Edgar's in 973. But it is true that in the 20th century, the organisers, liturgists and musicians found a way to make a 1,000-year-old ceremony appealing to a democratic age. When, in 1953, the Abbey rose as one to belt out Vaughan Williams's setting of All People That On Earth Do Dwell, it was the first time the whole congregation had sung at a coronation. It was also the first time the event had been visible to millions, thanks to Elizabeth's insistence on bringing in the TV cameras. Cartier-Bresson had registered that democratic shift 16 years earlier. In the most celebrated of the photographs, he presents the Trafalgar Square crowd as the real protagonists. They are not deferentially gawping. They have taken over the square and they look out with something like defiance. And then you notice the man at the bottom of the frame. It's his coronation and he'll sleep through it if he wants to. That was Dan Hitchens. And finally, Ascender Max Tone Graham. Now the exhilaration kicks in, the lightness of heart, a joyfulness surging along the warmed blood vessels and tingling extremities. Every cell feels as if charged with new life. There has been a ritual, a sacrifice, an offering to the waves of flesh and pain. And in return, there is restoration, life given back. Thus, Madeleine Bunting describes the bliss, not of swimming, but of having just emerged from the icy British sea into which she is addicted to plunging in winter as well as summer. In this fizzing state, having pulled her clothes back on, she goes straight to the nearest steamy cafe for fish and chips and tea. Tempted? I'm certainly not out of season, delicious though the fish and chips and tea sound. But I do like to read about the contemporary British seaside as experienced and described by this thoughtful investigative writer who, post-swims, takes off her rose-tinted specks. We follow her clockwise in stages between Covid lockdowns as she travels round the coast from Scarborough to Morecambe, where she visits 40 resorts, swims, sometimes stays in the night in a hotel and once in Butlins, and then examines what's really going on a few streets back from the seafronts. Chatting to residents, holidaymakers, local councillors and optimistic people involved in regeneration projects, she paints a poignant picture of life on the edge of England. A resident of Hackney and a former associate editor and columnist of The Guardian, Bunting makes no secret of the fact that this is primarily a work of journalism by a Londoner. She loads it with statistics such as that the suicide rate in Scarborough is 61% higher than the national average, that youth unemployment in Thanet was twice the national average in December 2021, and that there's a 10-year difference in life expectancy between Western Supermare, 67, and the more upmarket Clevedon a few miles along the coast, 77. Witnessing the effects of poverty and rapacious landlords in Blackpool and Morecambe, she doesn't conceal her fury at entrenched conservative complacency or at how the deprivation in these resorts magnifies the harshness of national policies which assume manifestly that some lives don't matter. Expecting a cheerful beach hut-based homage to the seaside, I soon realise that this is a much darker book. It's compelling because Bunting snoops around where most of us don't bother. I became intrigued by the idea of what gets exposed at the edges, what unravels and frays, she writes in her introduction. While politicians bluster about levelling up the inner cities, the coast, by contrast, is missing a narrative that can command attention. It's all too easy to forget about the reality of life in these seaside towns full of very old residents. 
Bunting quotes Matthew Paris's memorable observation about Clacton, written just after Douglas Carswell became its UKIP MP in 2014. Only in Asmara, after Eritrea's bloody war, have I encountered a greater proportion of citizens on crutches or in wheelchairs. It turns out that a great deal is unravelling and fraying if you look behind the scenes. In Margate, for instance, the opening of the Turner Contemporary Art Gallery in 2011 was a fine stroke for the cultural regeneration of the town, but its success caused house prices to rise by 24% in one year. Now on one side of the street, you'll see a house painted in Faro and Ball, while on the other is one in multiple occupation, with families struggling with overcrowding and unsafe conditions. Behind closed doors, prostitution and drug dealing are still rife. The decline of these wonderful places with their grand hotels and palm tree filled Victorian gardens set in from the moment the British started going abroad on packet holidays in the 1960s. As one advisor on cultural regeneration tells Bunting, Blackpool moved lock, stock and barrel to Benidorm. Who can blame the British when you consider weather? Bunting gives an evocative description of her journey in the driving rain from Ilfracombe to Minehead when she could barely see beyond the windscreen. Those continental stale parks and exotic gardens in resorts such as Skegness and Morecambe incubated the taste for the foreign. So as soon as it was possible to go abroad cheaply, off everyone went. I salute the heroic people Bunting met who are trying to reverse the spiral of decline, such as Ian Treasure, who led a project on homelessness and substance abuse in Blackpool, helping people in small, kind, practical ways, such as buying one traumatised homeless man a fishing rod. And lovely Nikki, who set up a project for young people on an industrial estate on the outskirts of Rill in Wales. When it comes to the dilapidated town centres, though, Bunting wryly reckons that the £1.6 million to renovate the centre of Bognor Regis can do little given the scale of the challenge. The Eden Project North is due to open in Morecambe next year. Good luck to that. What survives is a strong seam of nostalgia for these seaside resorts. Millions of us visit them to relive the thrill of childhood holidays. In New Brighton on the Wirral, Bunting goes to a tea shop called Remember When. That sad name sums up the nostalgic gene in all of us. And in every resort she goes to, the fish and chips taste as good as ever, even if they now cost four times as much in Torquay as they do in wind-blasted Skegness. And that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator's special Coronation Edition? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week. Mm-hmm.